Hello and welcome back to the Countering Climate Skepticism podcast. Each week we tackle a different climate skeptic argument from different levels of the climate denial ziggurat. Our ziggurat is a stepped pyramid showing all the different levels of people that uh, deny the existence of climate change. If you want to know more about that, we have a specific episode explaining what the ziggurat is in detail, although episode one is a good place to start too. My name is John Rainier and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Prosser. How are you doing, Mark? I'm good, John. Uh, I feel a little bit guilty as I've decided that after my PhD, I'm going to fly to Japan. Uh, <laughs> and that's not very good for the climate. I'm going to no, be straight with you. No, not. definitely not. No. <laughs> so, and, I, and, I, and I, I don't fly a lot. In fact, I've it's been 13 in the past 13 years. I haven't flown. So okay. it's, it's a oh, bit that's of a, really good. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bit of a departure for me. Um, but in order to make up for it, I've decided that for the rest of my life, between March and September, so for the, the sunniest six months of the year, I am just going to have cold showers. Okay. Oh, interesting. So wow, not... that's 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 quite a commitment. <laughs> it is, but uh, I still feel guilty about it. Uh, yeah. Well, it kind of fits in with what we're going to be talking about today, really. And you know, I think... Uh, that's going to overlap with us talking about uh, the cognitive dissonance of uh, trying to do your best, but knowing you're not what you're doing isn't good enough. We plan to move on to the third level of the ziggurat this week, uh, which is the idea that climate change is happening. It's us that's causing it, but that the consequences aren't going to be that bad. Uh, and we're going to get onto that next episode instead. We thought it might be a good point to have an episode on climate denial itself actually looking at what climate denial is, uh, why people believe that, and uh, who, what type of people are denying climate change, and, and why. the many sources of it. Uh, is it the fossil fuel industry? Are they the cause, the genesis of all climate change? Um, or are there other areas as well? It's a fascinating subject if it wasn't so consequential. Yes. Um, so, Mark, do you want to start by explaining what climate denial and scepticism actually is? Yeah. So, uh, typically, uh, climate scepticism or denial is when individuals or groups dispute what has become accepted science uh, among the scientists that study these things. For example, we know that the Earth is warming and that humanity is responsible for that warming because of our emissions of greenhouse gases that trap heat, gases like CO2. So our, our podcast more generally, uh, through the, uh, the stepped pyramid ziggurat uh, framework, goes into uh, great detail about what is meant by climate scepticism and denial. Uh, I think it's fair to say in general that the term uh, can be taken in a more narrow or a broad sense. Uh, the narrow sense is the one that I've just talked about, the, the, the flat denial of science. But there's a more general sense in which climate scepticism is defined by uh, anyone arguing against uh, pro-climate action to stop us moving in a positive direction of solving this problem. Uh, if we take this broader definition, then I think there's a bit of climate denial in all of us, if we're absolutely honest. For example, in order to mitigate climate change, we should be all flying a lot less and eating a lot less meat. Yet many of us, uh, including me, as I've just admitted to, who are concerned with climate change, continue to do these things. So are we, on some level, in denial or sceptical? Just to be clear, 
Uh, I think the the latter case of everyday climate denial and scepticism is far less problematic than the narrower sense uh, when you're denying science. Uh, but I pointed out, uh, as it is a facet of the way that we respond to the challenge that climate change presents us. Okay, so that's a bit of discussion about what we mean when we talk about climate scepticism. Like John says, for those that are interested, we have a whole uh, ziggurat episode, I think it's the second one we ever did, uh, where we provide a more uh, specific idea of how to think about the different types that you find out there, rather than just broad and narrow. Okay, so let's look at at some of the causes of scepticism then, Mark. Why are some people sceptical of climate change? Yeah, they are, aren't they? Uh, I think it's fair to say that there has been and still is a fair bit of climate scepticism out there. Uh, And it's really an interesting question as to why, where the fuck does it all come from? So I'm going to posit today in this episode three broad sources of climate scepticism and denial. Uh, If any of listeners think that uh, between John and myself, we don't cover all the different sources, please do send us emails. We'd be really, really interested to hear uh, other opinions on this. So, So to start off with, for the first reason, I think of it as the elephant in the room. Uh, the fossil fuel industry, coal, oil and gas. Um, The modern world economy, as listeners may have heard, has been running predominantly on coal, oil and gas. And these are known as fossil fuels. The fossil fuel industry is therefore mind-bogglingly huge, and so are the enormous profits to be made. Climate change, unfortunately, necessitates that we move away from fossil fuels and get our energy elsewhere. This, from the point of view of the fossil fuel industry, is extremely troubling, existential even. And when faced with a choice between profits and a livable earth, they choose the former. Now, if for a minute I was to throw them a bone, a small bone, I guess that they would argue back, if hey, if we stopped digging for these fossil fuels, someone else would. And in the world we live in, they may well be right here. But on the other hand, this is where they then complain about governments being to blame by not tying their hands legislatively from stopping them doing this, but at the same time making damn well sure that the very same governments can't do this through their extensive lobbying efforts on those same governments. In any case, companies like ExxonMobil have decided that the fossil fuel production is going to continue and alongside lobbying efforts to encourage governments to choose fossil fuels over renewables have also been promoting an enormous climate denial campaign to muddy the waters. Uh, So we're we're actually seeing that that they are funding a lot of the propaganda being put out there about climate denial. Yeah, so there there are a lot of think tanks that sort of operate in this space and they get their funding from from various dubious sources. Sometimes it's hidden, but sometimes you can trace it back. I think there's a book I'm going to mention a bit later uh, by Naomi Oreskes, who talks about the sort of the the whole industry of climate denial and how it's funded and this sort of thing? Mm. I'm not I'm not an expert on that, but it's yeah it's 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 very active um, and still is. So the just so I, I talked about muddying the waters, but to give a an, an, another example of this, when the scientists first raised the alarm bells about smoking causing cancer, 
uh, the tobacco companies, of course, fought back. However, they quickly realised that they, they didn't have to win the argument, uh, i.e. they didn't have to prove to the public that there was no cancer risk. All they had to do was to sow a little bit of doubt about the uh, cigarette causing cancer claim to reduce the certainty of that link in the public's mind and in the smokers' minds. If they could manage that, then smokers would think, oh, well, all the experts seem to disagree, so I guess uh, there's no point giving up just yet. Uh, and so it is with uh, climate change. In fact, uh, as I just mentioned, uh, Naomi Oreskes' book, Merchant of Doubt, makes the case that it is the very same people and firms involved in muddying the waters on tobacco and climate change. They're the same. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. It's, it's, it's infuriating. Um, <sighs> it's, it's not as if this is all new. It's, it's sort of tried and tested. Um, so if they can sow enough doubt, then action on climate change gets delayed, fossil fuel production stays high, and the profits keep coming in. Good for them, not so good for the rest of us. I don't think anyone should be surprised by this. Time and time again, when it is discovered a certain industry is damaging public health and or the environment, they fight back in similar ways. In the 60s, it was realised that the lead content of petrol was harming people's health quite seriously, and the companies involved used the same sorts of tactics, muddying the waters on the science, uh, delaying action on this, trying to influence politics to stick with the status quo, that would be advantageous to them. If you're interested in delving deeper into this story in particular about leaded petrol and the efforts to get rid of it, to phase it out, please do check out a very nice dramatization of it in episode seven of Neil deGrasse Tyson's series, Cosmos, A Space-Time Odyssey. We'll stick a link in the show notes. I, I think the fossil fuel industry, first and foremost, when I think of sources of climate denial and skepticism, because without them bankrolling with their huge funds, the denial think tanks that muddy the water, climate denial would probably be far less prominent a feature of our modern day culture. However, I personally think that there's a little more to climate skepticism and denial than just fossil fuel interests. Any thoughts on that, John? Uh, yeah, so I was having a, a think on these and, and I think a lot of the the ideas I was coming up with was uh, more of a, from a kind of psychological perspective, really. Um, for for mm. one, like climate change is really difficult to see. So for yeah. for individual people, the the time scale, even though on a geolog geolog uh, geological time scale, it's very fast. Uh, for us as as individuals, it's hard to see it happening, and it's hard to equate our personal experiences what we see going around day to day with the the global scientific reality so if you're not directly experiencing it you know it's it's far easier for you to to convince yourself that well maybe it's not actually happening certainly uh, and i think um the other one is is fear like i mean just hearing everything you've been talking about about the fossil fuel industry <laughs> it's uh led me feeling really depressed and really feeling like i i, I can't influence that or or control that in any way and i think that's a sense of of what climate change can bring in a lot of ways uh the, the there's so much like doom and gloom as we talk about each episode and we try and combat with our good news stories yeah but also it it tends to kind of 
try and shock people into making a change uh, mm-hmm. but because of that it's it's a very negative focus so it it kind of creates this sense that oh it's the apocalypse the world's ending uh, we're on the brink of despair and and everything like that and yeah, yeah. that's sometimes for, for many people uh, they've got enough going on in their lives and people just don't want to invite more of that into their lives and so if you can't directly see it why bring in something that's that's very negative um, into your life anyway? They've got their own personal challenges that, that everyone's trying to overcome. I can sympathise with a lot of that. Uh, and I, I totally agree. It is a really unsexy subject. Uh, and and the, the, the raft of negative emotions that accompany it uh, is, is, is really unfortunate. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and like anyone who's, who's uh, been put off or... or being depressed by the subject i i can i can understand that so i have i have sympathy sympathy for these people yeah yeah absolutely and you know like none of us are perfect and and that's something we'll we'll talk about a a bit uh, later on in the episode as well you know like so all of us to some extent even if we're doing our absolute best um, we often feel really guilty like we feel like we're we're personally responsible for for these terrible things that are that are happening to to the whole planet and it it feels even worse as well if you feel that you can't directly change it you know i mean i got really depressed this week when reading this news story about the the richest one percent account for more carbon emissions than the poorest 66 percent in the entire world so there can also come along with it this this sense of hopelessness because there are there are people having so much bigger an impact that even if i am absolutely shit hot at making sure i recycle mm. <laughs> then it is just a drop in the ocean when it comes to actually what needs to happen to to combat climate change and yes. you know my my, my wife she She's a, a cognitive behavior therapist and she was also mm. talking about this idea of, of cognitive dissonance, uh, mm. this idea that um, it, so that's a, a mental conflict that occurs when your beliefs don't line up with your actions. Um, and it, it creates a really uncomfortable state of mind having these contradictory values and attitudes or perspectives about about something like climate change. And so in a lot of ways, it's it's then just easier to just not have that dissonance or avoid that dissonance sometimes not even consciously uh, by just not not doing it by just going okay well that that can't be a thing then so um i'm i'm going to deny the science that's there yes yeah i, I hear you uh i think I, th- I think when there's a tendency and i think i'm a little bit guilty of it as well to focus maybe on the on the on the individual things that we can do um for climate change like give up certain things like eating meat and flying uh, yeah. i mean while that's that's obviously important i th- i mean obviously you know there we need to as a society we need to change you know governments corporations collectively so so the onus i, I don't think the onus should be on individuals first and foremost um i think it's yeah yeah and and that's also something that that I do see a trend of in in politics as well this idea that it's everyone's responsibility so you go and do it yeah can also be a way of just absolving bigger companies that are actually the ones that are going to make the significant difference from from actually doing what needs to be done yes no I agree with you there and and it's cynical basically and yeah and they they know it's cynical 
so yeah so this is this is why first and foremost i <laughs> i talk about the fossil fuel industry it's not the the only reason uh, but it's 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 a big part of uh, why we have climate change denial and skepticism and to be honest you know if if they had dabbled less in politics we might be further down the road because we've known about this problem for since the since the well we've known about it before the 90s but in the 90s you know we were certain enough that we needed to do something so so a lot of time has been been wasted by heel dragging so so essentially my 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 eyes are focused on the fossil fuel industry not not individuals Um, so you talked a lot about sort of our individual psychology there i have also been thinking about uh sort of individual psychological reasons why some people are maybe a bit more skeptical about climate change Uh, and i once read a very persuasive article by a guy called mike berners lee uh entitled climate change you almost couldn't design a problem that is a worse fit with our underlying psychology okay very catchy title. It starts off with the following quote. Uh, if you ever wanted to invent a problem to induce confusion, disbelief, and the turning of blind eyes, it would be hard to come up with something better than climate change. It's caused by a buildup of gases that we can't see, smell, or taste, and the effects play out through a weather and climatic system that is by its nature unpredictable and variable. This mix of abstraction, complexity, and long-term uncertainty provides the human mind with all the wiggle room it needs for avoiding or playing down the uncomfortable facts of the situation. And in some ways, we might be innately predisposed to doing just that. End quote. Yeah. Now, the article isn't long, but it contains point after interesting point as to why we humans struggle with climate change more generally. But of particular interest to this discussion is something called an optimism bias that we appear to have wired into us by evolution. Although certainly hasn't been that excessively hardwired into me, I must admit. <laughs> For example, uh, we tend to underestimate the probability that we will experience negative outcomes. For example, no one thinks they're gonna get divorced or get cancer, but we overestimate positive outcomes like living till the age of 90 or winning the lottery. So when it comes to an unpleasant subject like climate change, we tend to sort of disbelieve it on some level. I mean, can it really be that bad? Won't it just sort itself out like the ozone problem a while back and other environmental problems the way they did? Uh, in another quote from the uh, the essay, uh, Berners-Lee, Berners-Lee says, uh, this sunny outlook may help us to, so he's talking about the optimism bias, may help us to lower stress levels and improve physical health, Sharot uh, and others argue, but it also makes us prone to sitting back and just hoping for the best when such a response doesn't make sense. Mm. So even without the fossil fuel industry, denial and skepticism may still persist. Yeah. I think I've mentioned this anecdote before on the podcast, uh, but an old teacher of mine who I met up with for dinner once was skeptical about humans changing the climate because she thought we were way too small as a species to affect something as flaming big as the earth. Mm. So once I realized this, I, I showed her uh, the image, which I'll link in the show notes, which shows to scale how large the bundled up into a ball ocean and atmosphere was compared to the solid Earth. Now you'll have to see the, the, the image to know what I'm talking about, but the ocean and the atmosphere are a lot smaller than you might think if you bundle them into a ball. Hmm. 
And I think this helped change her perception somewhat. Um, in any case, the notion that we are destabilizing our environment is perhaps a little bit unbelievable for many people as well as being scary. And so I can understand why some people would rather not think about it or believe it to be true. So apart from sort of the fossil fuel industry and um, sort of individual psychological reasons, do you think there's anything else, John? Or Yeah, I think, and this really seems to have become a case maybe in the last five years or so, but how people identify politically seems to have been built into the issue as well. Mm. So I think, you know, particularly we see this like with with Just Stop Oil and, and groups like that, um, it's become very much viewed as a leftist issue. Mm. Uh, people on the left, um, and especially pointing towards radical people on the left, are those that are pushing for this. Um, and if you lean more politically right, uh, it's seen as, as something that is either not as big a priority as it's given um, from those people uh, on the left, or that it's something that is just completely just not what we need to be focusing on at all. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's put very succinctly. Um, I, 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 I completely agree. Um, so politics, in my view, in the Western world in recent years has undergone a change from the traditional left-right politics of redistribution to the the current, I guess, localist or nationalist versus globalist types of politics. Mm. Um, it's all a bit confusing, to be honest, but it's, it's fair to say that whatever the state of politics, it's a hell of a lot more polarised than it once was. Yeah. Like you were saying with Just Stop Oil um, and how they are viewed, you know, you, you either love them or hate them. It seems yeah. to be yeah, the way it is now. So, so this idea of a culture war where, where two tribes attempt to pulverise each other in, an, in a never-ending war uh, where nuanced debate has no place, th this is the reality of too much political discourse uh, nowadays. I can't remember where I heard this discussion before, but the person was arguing that, that I, on this podcast or somewhere... That in the 50s, in the US in particular, people were a lot more heterogeneous politically. Uh, so in, for, for instance, on the issue of race, uh, religion and economics, you know, your viewpoints wouldn't always line up. It would be more of a sort of a mix and match. You could have someone who was economically left wing, uh, religious and pro-civil rights. But equally, you could have someone on the right who was also religious and for civil rights. So the point is that these three separate identities didn't always line up along tribal lines. Mm. And you may often have agreed with someone on some things, but not on others. Unfortunately, this no longer seems to be the case much anymore. You know, if, if you're on this side, you believe these things. And if you're on that side, you believe these things. There's, there's, everyone, yeah. there's a sort of yeah. conformity among the sides. If you're on this team... And yeah. And as as I was hearing in particular when we were over in the States, like if you're not somebody who thinks exactly the way you should think on your side, then mm. you are a rhino, as the uh, Republicans <laughs> would call them, a Republican in name only. Oh, right. That's interesting. I've never heard of that. Yeah. It's a, one of Trump's favorite phrases. Yeah. Uh, God. <laughs> right. Okay. That's that's. Yeah. Yeah. It's all that. That's that's so mean, isn't it? You know, all the sort of yeah. moderate Republicans. 
Yeah, oh yeah, I mean, like I, I read his Thanksgiving message uh, that he gave, and it basically said Thanksgiving to all those bastards who were out to try and get me. And it's like, yeah, really in the spirit of Thanksgiving there. <laughs> what a twat. Yes. Um, so anyway, for any of like, our American listeners, twat is an insult. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we this this podcast. Uh, you know, we'll 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 extend our hand to sort of you know moderate Republicans, you know, of, of which some do ex- still exist. Um, uh, you know, I listen to a few of them. David Frum, for example, is a yeah. who I'd consider a moderate Republican, but but um, Trump is not moderate. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you think he's moderate, then uh, maybe check out your own epistemics. Um, right. So climate change, too, unfortunately has become part of this tribal culture war, particularly in America. If you are religious, right-wing, and dubious about social social justice, then chances are you are also likely to be sceptical about climate change. If you are economically left-wing, non-religious, and pro-social justice, then chances are you accept the science of climate change. Why is this? Well, I guess as people, we like to think that a lot of our opinions, or all of our opinions, in fact, are carefully thought out by us. But the reality is that we often tend to inherit our beliefs and our opinions from the social groups in which we're embedded, okay. our tribal elders, etc. If the people we trust are sceptical of climate, then so are we. If they're pro-action on climate, then we are too. And another good quote from the Mike Berners-Lee's essay argues that climate change tends to be used as a political football in the much older debate about whether capitalism is or isn't a force for good in the world. So quoting him again, uh, and we'll put a link to the full essay in the show notes, quote, it's convenient for people with a libertarian political perspective to see global warming as not being dangerous as it avoids acknowledging the need for government regulation. Right, yeah, of course. And they don't want that. But also, climate change is an attractive concept for people who, for whatever reason, are excited by the idea of modern capitalism imploding or Mother Nature putting humans back in their place. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Never met anyone like that. Uh, Not. (laughs) (laughs) So, but but that, that too is unhelpful, as it means that some individuals waxing lyrical about climate change do so with a hint of glee or as part of a broader political narrative, not to mention frequent factual errors. Yeah, yeah. And and this is true because climate change is serious, but you you get some types who will actually, like, exaggerate the risks as well. You know, I mean, mean, the risks uh, and impacts are big enough. You don't need to exaggerate them, but you get... I think there's there's a a sort of a, a guy who's put out a book and it just paints, you know, like an apocalyptic vision of what the near future is going to be like mm-hmm. and i don't think i think science, climate scientists disagree with it because it's just gone too far the other way yeah. so so it's serious enough you don't need to exaggerate it but some people do because you know it basically helps them argue that capitalism is bad and so they're yeah. they're, they're all for it so, so, so when when someone like that, you know, talks about climate change like this uh, and exaggerates it, this serves as further proof to those with the opposite instincts, causing them to become yet more entrenched in their positions. And so, a debate which demands to be had with open-mindedness has been stifled by the polarization of attitudes and even more biased and selective interpretation of evidence on all sides. End quote. 
So rather than asking the question of why are some people sceptical about climate change, you might instead invert the question. Why are some people so invested in the concept of climate change? Sure, the science backs it up, largely, but is that the entire reason? I mean, if I give you 100 libertarians and 100 left-wingers, you'll find you can, for the most part, predict fairly accurately in advance what their opinions on climate change will be. I personally think it's worth reflecting on this because if you frame the whole thing as the right are bad people who are anti-science and the left are good people who are pro-science, then you're unlikely to be able to persuade those on the other side who are sceptical. And if the subject becomes too politically polarised like that, then one side will continue to block legislation on it and more crucial time is wasted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's rise, yeah. rise above it, rise above it. Yeah, it's it's easier said than done, but um, because the you know the the culture war uh, is so all pervasive that we all kind of get sucked into it. I think a little bit, but mm. but like you mm. say, if you can rise above it. So yeah, so so essentially in the in the US, I think Biden managed to get through a package on on climate change, but it was only touch and go, you know, um, because. Republicans tend to block things, action on climate change, or, or the modern day Republican Party at least. Uh, so, so this is this is this is to some extent reality in American politics, and not so much in European politics, but it's still an issue. So, so and and this this comes back full circle to the fossil fuel industry as such. Political deadlocks on climate action suits them just down to the ground. Yeah, any so, any kind of disagreement you know, feeds those who want nothing to happen. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the, the whole uh, muddying the waters. So d- did you think I I covered all the bases there, John, with those three reasons? But so to summarise, the fossil fuel industry, our individual psychology, and then more our sort of our group and tribal psychology. Uh, do you think yeah, well, anything else? I- or? Yeah, I just uh, the the one last point I've got to finish up with really kind of links in with that last point, but also kind of looks at things from a, a kind of historical sociological perspective as well. Mm-hmm. And and so I've been reading this book at the moment on uh, the early modern on early modern Europe. So it's called Early Modern Europe and Oxford History. It's one of my old university books. I've finally got round to reading. Uh, and there's a, a chapter in there uh, by uh, Anthony Pagden who kind of talks about how Europe has developed. And obviously so much of um, the industrialization of the world comes from the development of Europe in the early modern period and spreading it. And, and I'm including uh, the United States and, and Canada within that as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, so really climate change, you know, the, the the impacts of industrialization have really come from us, you know, and, and that's why I feel like us in particular in England, you know, as the progenitors of, of industrialization really have a lot of responsibility to, mm. to do something about this. And uh, so this chapter uh, in this book talks about uh, where where Europe gets that that viewpoint that cultural and moral viewpoint from uh, and you can really trace it right back to ancient greek and ancient roman traditions uh, as well as coming through our christian belief system which has uh, dominated so much of of european uh, politics over the last uh, four centuries that uh, our morals kind of come from this belief that part of being human is to harness nature for our own benefit so I think sometimes some of the resistance that we see um, is that it's seen as being like 
anti what our identity is founded in, anti our kind of like cultural beliefs that we as humans are here to be able to harness the world around us and to bend it to our will and and make it what is ours, you know, and and to some extent that really, really lies at the heart of uh, the conflict between indigenous people in America and uh, and the the Native Americans and and the kind of the the Western. Uh, American nation as it was developing so it it really can be seen I think sometimes that anybody saying that no we need to go back to nature no we need to undo the impacts of uh, all of this progress and and technology uh, can be seen as being people making a stand against our very identity uh, as humans. That's extremely interesting, and I had never considered that as a possible reason why people object to uh, the, the climate change and the issues that throws up. Yeah, yeah, the idea that nature is our servant in a kind of a way. Um, and, and when you say, hang on a second, not quite. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, 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 something is shaken, I guess, in people, and they have a hard time dealing with that. Yeah. And, yeah. and but to put a, a more positive spin on it as well, like, um, you know, in, in the Bible, you know, it's it's very clear that nature is, is there to serve man. It's a gift from God to 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 help man. But the concept of stewardship is also a key part of the Bible as well, that we have a responsibility to take care of nature and the world around us. Okay, well, that's so that gives us a, <laughs> a way to sort of, you know, like uh, talk to certain people who might have this, hold this sort of cultural idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So those are the three big reasons, or now four, including, including John's extra cultural one that we have come up with. Uh, like we say, if listeners want to email in other candidates, we'd be very happy to hear them. One of the one of the main sorry just to summarize I guess uh, one of the main reasons why we started this podcast was to educate members of the public about the the science of climate change, why we know what we know, uh, to kind of like inoculate them against climate misinformation or disinformation. So that's that's a very passive kind of thing I guess. But if you if you want to actively go out there and persuade people you know, who might be sceptical about climate change, and you want to stand the absolute best chance possible of convincing or persuading them, you need to first identify why it is that they struggle with the idea in the first place. You need to get this really focused idea of that. Now, now sometimes it will be impossible or impractical. Uh, you're not going to convince a dyed-in-the-wool uh, denier uh, that the climate is changing and that we're to blame and that we should do something about it. Uh, but there are many people out there who are sceptical, who are nevertheless persuadable if you clearly identify and speak to their specific underlying concerns. We are, at the end of the day, for better or worse, emotional creatures. Cheers, Mark. That's a, a great point to end on there. Now we're going to talk about our, our good news story. Uh, well, in fact, actually, for this week, we've got two good news stories. <laughs> so I've, uh, I've dug deep. I've found uh, a local one. And when I say local, 
based in the UK, but then also Europe as well. Um, and a, a crazy kind of like future science sci-fi one that caught my eye as well. So first of all, in the UK, abandoned coal mines are providing uh, a surprisingly potent source of zero carbon energy, um, and not just in the UK, but across Europe as well. So uh, an old coal mine has been providing an English town uh, with green energy for the last six months. This project is started in the town of Gateshead and what it does is it uses the warm water that has filled up the tunnels in the mine to heat hundreds of homes and businesses uh, mm-hmm. in the former coalfield community so I was like how, how on earth does this work how can you heat homes just from water that's just been sat underground but basically it it shows real potential uh, because it's the first large-scale network that and, and I was completely unaware of this we have apparently a sprawling warren of old mining tunnels that sit beneath around a quarter of homes in the entire country Ooh. I mean that just absolutely blows my mind that our mining network is was that large it's uh, so basically there's an estimated two billion cubic meters of warm water in these mines uh, more than a quarter of the volume of lock itself and um, so the geologists believe that these mine shafts hold one of the biggest underused sources of clean energy so the the way it works basically the water as it as it um, collects in the mines it gets warmer the deeper it goes so the temperatures can range from about 10 to 20 degrees but if you are a depth of a kilometer below ground in these mines it can reach up to 40 degrees Mm. so as a thermal source, it can be harnessed through drilling boreholes, which then bring that water back up to the surface. It's then using heat pumps and extractors, they compress the liquid, which increases the temperature, and then it gets distributed through heating networks. And then once it's been absorbed in surrounding buildings, the water then can be recirculated back into the mine system to be warmed again so it's this self-contained self-sustaining system as well and one of the advantages is that the water heated by mines um, it it can be working all year round so it's not affected seasonally and it can also apparently be used to cool homes as well as to heat them as well Um, and another massive advantage as well is that those communities particularly those in the UK that were hit particularly bad by the the mining closures in the 1980s it's going to be a real boost to the economies of those areas as well so and you know all credit where it's due as well because originally this idea um, originated in the Netherlands and in Spain they've been running this system for a while and we've now adopted it into the uk as well that that's that's great yeah is i mean is it is it actually our steps do you know if steps are being taken to actually make this a reality for a lot of houses you know on top I, of coal mines I, or? I don't know i don't know to be honest um like i the article didn't go into that but uh, it to be honest it it seems like something that is is almost like too good an opportunity to 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 miss you know when you've got something that is already there as yeah. an untapped resource um you know it almost seems daft not to use it yes yeah i agree uh, yeah that's 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 really cool um never thought about coal mines having having water sort of because yeah like it, if, to get heat out of the ground you need to dig the holes first but we've got this this network yeah. already there so yeah 
And and our second good news story is uh, like one of these kind of almost something lifted straight out of a science fiction book. So they they are uh, building a solar space farm that is going to orbit above the Earth and could be operational by 2035. So there's a technology firm based in Oxfordshire in the UK uh, called Space Solar who uh, say that it could be a major contributor to our energy supply in the future. So it will be two kilometres long. Uh, solar panels in space and it would then send that energy back to earth in the same kind of way that mobile phone signals work and it could uh, because obviously it's in space uh, the the uh, sun sunlight is 10 times stronger outside of earth's atmosphere than it is when it hits the earth and it also has the advantage that it's not dictated by times of the day so it can capture sunlight 24 hours a day Um, and so can produce significantly more renewable energy than terrestrial equivalents on the earth could do Um, and then last october the european space agency called esa um, unveiled a plan for a solar farm that would float 36,000 kilometers above the earth and so all the innovations that have been done at the moment in reusable space launches uh, have now made this something that's economically viable as well uh, so you know the the advances that we're that we're making in technology are really expanding our options for being able to move away from fossil fuels uh, at a far quicker rate as well also it uses half the land area of terrestrial solar farm Oh, blooming heck. Solar farms. For some reason, that's a tongue twister. Um, and one-tenth of the area of offshore wind farms while producing 13 times more renewable energy. And we've just currently invested £11 million. So that's £12.7 million Euros for research into solar-based power. I don't know about you, John, but hearing those two stories in quick succession, I feel like, you know, we stand a fighting chance with this. You know, all yeah. these smart yeah, people. absolutely. Like coming up with ideas left right and center you know maybe maybe we'll we'll pull it out of the bag you know yeah and 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 that combined with not making things worse now i think that's the key thing like we 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 harness our ability as humans to to learn develop and improve while at the same time not making it worse stopping doing the things that we know that are are causing the problem in the first place yes yeah it's it's um while it's, I'm, I'm always a bit sceptical about people who just think technology is going to save us. Hang I mean, on, that what? Is... You're a sceptic? <laughs> no. The sceptic word <laughs> itself is not a dirty word in the context of climate change. No, in fact, actually, yeah, yeah, that's a very good point because I was going to mention that earlier, in fact, that actually, you know, scepticism is healthy. And, you know, by its very nature, I'm sure you'd agree, that's what a scientist is. You know, they're sceptical of the science that currently exists and therefore they're looking to find uh, an experiment and find new ways to 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 develop and improve and what we know and what we understand and it's the same same from my discipline as well in history it's always good to be a skeptic uh, as long as you're not denying what is uh, proven facts exactly and it's funny funnily enough i don't think we've actually mentioned this in the um in the podcast before but um yeah the idea that they're that they've claimed the mantra of 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 skeptics when in fact they're denialists you know, it just—they've just co-opted the word. They are not really skeptics because skeptics, you know, well, they will have good reasons for what they believe, but will change their mind if they are shown incontrovertible yeah, evidence. Yeah, yeah. So they're not skeptics really. However, while saying that, you know, general members of the public, like my old teacher, 
um, you know, is it just sort of doesn't quite believe that like we can impact, you know, something as large as the earth and they're skeptical. That's fair enough, you know, in, in that use of the word, but, um, but yeah, so like, and like you say, science is all about skepticism. Okay. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. You can find a link to all the materials we've referenced uh, in this episode in our show notes. Um, Although we said this last week, next episode, uh, we do plan, we actually plan uh, to look at uh, level three of the ziggurat. So that will be the idea that warming is happening. It is human cause, but the impact will be significant. And we'll be looking at disproving some of the arguments around that idea. Um, and uh, if you want to know more about the Cl- Countering Climate Skepticism podcast, check out our website at ccspod.podbean.com. Something that will really, really help us out at the moment. We've been getting a fair few reviews coming in, um, but particularly reviews, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts will help us out massively. So if anybody's thinking of leaving us a review, do please do that. Uh, you can uh, give us five-star reviews on Spotify and things like that. Really, really helps us out. Uh, we We've been seeing our, our listener base expand over over the last few weeks so we'd like to say a, a personal hello not only to our listeners in the uk but also those that are tuning in from america um, and uh, austria as well and the netherlands and we we seem to be a, a big hit in germany as well so uh dankeschön to all of those over in germany as well who are who are listening uh keep keep spreading the word if you want to send us any feedback suggestions for denial skepticism or contrarian arguments or if you've got further questions about the things that we've talked about and you want to know more uh, then by all means uh, drop us an email or contact us on social media Uh, okay so that's it from me it's goodbye from me john rainier and goodbye from me mark rosser And just a a final quote to leave you with today. Uh, This comes from, I think I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Shia Bastida, who is a Mexican uh, indigenous climate activist from the uh, Otomi people in Mexico. And she said, a vibrant, fair and regenerative future is possible. Not when thousands of people do climate justice activism perfectly, but when millions of ordinary people do the best they can. (laughs) 